Sci-Fi for Me Radio presents Timothy Harvey, Jason Hunt. This is H2O. Welcome, everyone. This 149th episode of H2O here on Sci-Fi for Me Radio. My name is Jason Hunt. And I am Timothy Harvey. What are we talking about? Well, you know, we talked um, a couple weeks ago about the new Dune adaptation mm-hmm. coming out. And one of the things that raises an interesting discussion possibility about is the adaptations of famous uh, science fiction and fantasy works that have been successful and have also not been (laughs) successful. And we have our big 150th episode is next week. So we're going to have to come up with some really cool stuff for you there. But for this week... I think we'll celebrate with coffee. (laughs) Okay. Um, yes, that is an ongoing celebration. I, actually, what I what I thought to do, and, and we mentioned this last week, and I'll go ahead and open it up again. The email address, h2o at sci-fi for me.com. Send us your questions. Mm-hmm. Send us, you know, 10 questions for Tim, 10 questions for me, five questions for each of us, whatever you want to do. Send us notes uh, and let us know. Um, we did get a note from Ray mm-hmm. about a potential event to go for live streaming. Oh, cool. Uh, Alexicon, which is up oh. in Pennsylvania, in, oh, okay. in Reading, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. which is, by what I looked at today, I think a 16 and a half hour drive <laughs> from here, from here in Kansas City. My ex-wife would be really annoyed with me if I made it up to Pennsylvania <laughs> uh, after she and her husband live don't live there anymore. And I never, I when they lived up in Pennsylvania, I oh, never. Sure. Well, yeah. I never, I never had the opportunity to get up there to see him. And I would love to. My ex-wife's a fr- really good friend of mine. So but they're closer now, aren't they? Or, no, no or, they're they're just out west. Oh, okay. So it's <laughs> they'd be like, oh, really? Now you make it to Pennsylvania? Sure. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, I, I sixteen and a half hours yeah, in a well. car with you. <laughs> <laughs> It's all we can do to stand this half hour together in the same room. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? (laughs) We leave leave your teenager at home. (laughs) My my teenager may choose to stay at home for for all the good we're doing right there. All right, so adaptations. Right, so I think you and I have long championed a film called John Carter. Gosh. And the audiences, unfortunately, did not. For 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 a lot of reasons, most mostly we've we've argued before yeah. that the advertising, as in terms of an adaptation of the source material, it's a very strong film. I think. It is, yes, and you can argue that. And I think there's some critics who've, who've made some points why it might not be, but I think overall the general consensus for the folks who are actually fans of the genre who know the source material know that it was a very solid adaptation. We I encourage anyone who hasn't seen it to see it. Um, bearing in mind, of course, that it was the source material mm-hmm. for a lot of things that we call. Star Wars or yeah. Star Trek or Superman. Superman or a lot of these things that we we know and take for granted. This is where that ground was trod first. So it's a it's an interesting one for the fact that when it finally got an adaptation for larger audiences, mm-hmm. it was walking over ground that other films that were inspired by it yeah. had already walked. Well, and and that brings to mind that fan trailer that was made. Um, that basically really presented the film in a much better light than anything Disney right. had come up yeah. with. That whole, you know, before Star Wars, before Flash Gordon, before Buck Rogers, before right. Superman, before all of this, there was John Carter. Mm-hmm. And and it is, you know, even before Tarzan. Oh, yeah. You know, John Carter was the first one. 
mm-hmm. and and say what you want about the Barsoom novels, I and mean, you could you, you know, there it has some stuff in it that people would probably not look at today. It go. Uh, what? <laughs> well, right, and some of that comes yeah. out of the culture of the time. Sure, but then, then you look at the influence that it's mm-hmm. had on everything. Sure, I mean it's not just you know Jaws making an impact on you know like monster movie. You know, go, don't go in the water type. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, then we get Piranha, and we get you know. Well, it's the difference between inspiration and knockoff. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, but the difference, John, between, the, difference between Hall- the first Halloween. And Friday the Thirteenth. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Friday Thirteenth films are were hugely successful in their own right, but in terms of quality of storytelling, they're light years apart between the first Halloween film and Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah. So, no offense to Friday the Thirteenth fans, but sorry, first Halloween film is a much better movie. This is not just opinion, by the way. This is fact. Just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, and you get you get these other these other um, these other genres where. Um, you have the one hit. Mm-hmm. This is the biggest success in this genre ever. Right. And now there's 12 of them. And oh, yeah. two of them come from the asylum before the main one comes out, right? <laughs> well, you, look at, you can see it in dramas, too. You look at, remember back in the 70s? Um, there was that little thing where everybody had to have a dying spouse. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seemed like that was, it, not, it wasn't really the case, but it seemed like that. Or I Nicholas just, Sparks adaptations oh, now, yes. the last, I guess, well, oh. I guess in the last decade, 15 years. But. I just watched an episode of Starsky and Hutch today uh-huh. where his girlfriend, the one that we've never seen in the show before. Sure, right. The one that he wants to marry. Uh-huh, right. Gets shot in the head. Of course. And dies at the end of the uh, of the episode. And it's, it's a very emotional episode. Mm-hmm. But like like all the television back then, it was episodic. There was no arc right. or anything. You know, Terry's there for this episode, and then she's shot, and then she's dead. Right. But for that episode, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of emotion packed into it. But yes, it's the dying spouse mm-hmm. trope, right? That that you get a lot in in those days because that was what seventy six, seventy seven when that show yeah, came. The seventies, the seventies were were really good for that. But you end up with things, I mean, certainly you can look at films that were inspired by other movies. Battlestar Galactica was clearly inspired by Star Wars. Yes. I mean, there's there's no debate about that. I mean, it's uh, it was many ways, no offense to Glenn Larson, but it was very much made to cash in on Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we had a reboot is really and kind we're of... we're going to get another one. And kind of amazing that we actually had, you know, something that was designed and actually ran for as short a period as it did. Yeah. Um, that it made that kind of cultural impact because it was on television at a time there was no science fiction on television. But you look at what I think one of the things that Battlestar Galactica had going for it was John Dykstra's visual effects, the production value, mm-hmm. just in for the television. Show. Yeah, it it really did. And you know, granted, the the longer you go in that show, the more you realize that they're repeating a lot of the oh, stock sure. shots. But how how different is it going to be for you to shoot a Cylon Raider with your Viper, and, right. you know, pew, 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 and it blows up? I would argue the biggest strength of that show, the original series, was the chemistry between the actors. Richard Hatch. And oh, Rick yeah, Bennett. that too. I think yeah. that, really was, that really sold the show right there for a lot of people. Yeah. But I think that when you look at what happens when... And Jane Seymour. Well, Jane Seymour and everything. <laughs> I, uh, we are we are of an age where we remember when she was new. 
Yes. And she was she was kind of like Farrah Fawcett in those days where it's mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, wow, she's pretty. <laughs> she still is pretty. Yeah, no, she, yeah, she yeah. definitely is. But you look at you look at what happens when you are adapting material uh, for a different medium and whether it's expanding that material. Say, say the uh, uh, when Star Wars went to radio. Oh yeah! So they expanded a lot of material. Yep, there was a Brian lot. Daly. The uh, the radio progr- programming, which was had, uh, had two or three people from the from the film cast in it. it Anthony the Daniels. First one, the first one, the Star Wars adaptation, had Mark Hamill and Anthony Daniels. Right. And then wasn't Billy D. Williams in the second one? I maybe. I, I want to say he was, but I'm not sure. I, I don't know because John Lithgow played Yoda mm-hmm. in that in that one. Um. And I don't. I know Daniels was back for Jedi. I don't know that anybody else was back. But those those were longer format. They they filled in holes in the story, things that did not make it to the screen. Yeah. Um, so you Perry, had a, Perry King played Han Solo. Oh yeah. <laughs> and he actually he actually was. I think if I remember this right, he was he was in the top five or six finalists for mm. Han Solo and I mean because you, you remember yeah, I mean, we've, we've heard the stories before sure of course everybody in, in LA read Christopher Walken <laughs> would have been a completely you different know, thing Kurt Russell would have been an interesting Han Solo oh yeah but he would have been I don't know there because uh, been... this would have been before Snake Plissken yeah before the thing, before you know, I mean, this would have been Kurt Russell coming out of Disney. Kurt Russell. Oddly enough, I can see him playing the character very, very similarly. Mm-hmm. I don't see there being that big of a, you know, that much daylight between the two performances. Um, it may have been completely different, but I just looking at looking at some of the characters he became known for. Yeah, especially post Disney. But um, so I mean, you can ha- you can have that expansion form, and you can certainly have the expansion form of turning The Hobbit into three movies when it didn't need to be. <laughs> But what? And but at least, at least, if you're doing something like The Hobbit and you're doing an expansion, they at least use Tolkien as the source material. Oh, yeah. or the extra stuff. Sure. So it's at least it's at least still Tolkien, mm-hmm. and yet this is this is the supplemental material that's in some of Tolkien's other writings that happen to connect to this, and oh, let's just throw it all in. So, God help us if they are trying to make the Similarian. Um, some, I've heard they're talking about it. Ugh. I know, right? That It took me, and I am I am a serious reader. I'm, I'm a serious audiobook nut guy, nut guy now because of the because of the day gig, but right. I am a, I own the book, and it took me four or five years to get through it, just mm. because I would get into it and I'd get bogged down. Yeah. It's a tough. It's a tough book to crack. I think that would be a terrible thing. I do. Not, it doesn't need. A, it does not need a movie. It doesn't. I'm no, sorry. It I'm, doesn't. I'm going to argue very strenuously that we had some amazing Lord of the Rings movies and a fan edit that brought The Hobbit down <laughs> to one film. I've heard. I haven't seen it. But the other, well, the other thing on that too is you look at stuff like Lord of the Rings. You look at The Hobbit and the impact that those adaptations have on other adaptations. Oh, sure. Because now you've got, I mean, you look at what happened with, uh, with the, the Narnia Chronicles, mm-hmm. where the expectation, because, you know, Tolkien and, and C.S. Lewis, they were contemporaries. Right. They sat across from each other at the, at the pub mm-hmm. and talked about all of this stuff. These are yeah. essentially the same core stories 
in different rappers. Sure, because they, they both were dealing in some ways with with religious themes and historical themes and yeah. things like that. And so you have this massively successful adaptation of Tolkien. Right. And not so much Narnia. And so now you've got you know the bean counters and the suits and the who's who what's it's in the offices are sitting there going well we want a lord of the rings just as like they had a you know new line had lord of the rings and it was mm-hmm. massively successful and why isn't this why doesn't it make a lot of money and it becomes about the you know ultimately sure it's show business it's right. you know it's about the money it's about the profit but it's like john carter you know there's a lot of office politics and expectations that have absolutely nothing to do with the mm-hmm. story. And it's like we're seeing now with uh, with Warner Brothers, with DC Comics stuff. Yeah. You know, you change directors, you throw the script out. Yeah. What? Why? Is it, uh, does the director decide that the script is bad enough, you just want to start from scratch? Or is it just a new policy that you get a new director, you get a new script? Well, and unfortunately for things, and we could talk more about this about on Rogue's Gallery, which we will record this Friday, another one of our podcasts. We talk Friday, about Friday, DC Friday. things. Yes. So we'll plug there, where this will be part of the, t- a lot of this stuff will be, t- some of the topics we'll be discussing this Friday, <laughs> because it's relatively new news about some of the stuff that's going on over there, or rumor. Yeah. And that, unfortunately, because we're getting- It's we're news not, about the rumors. Right. We're not getting the, we're not inside the room to hear what the actual discussions are. Wouldn't that be fun? I don't know. I don't know if it would be yeah, fun. Well, um, there's so much being, you know, we, it, we have been on the production side, the producing side of making short films. Yeah. And, or, or been involved in some production stuff for features and television. And it's like, uh, it's making sausage. It's not pretty. <laughs> no, and it's, and it's, it's often not. very painful. So you end up with a film like the three Lord of the Rings films. And then you had the adaptations on the, the DVDs, the the expanded versions, right? Where you were able to actually have the longer cuts of the films and all this supplementary supplementary material, really amazing stuff. And then the rush job of doing the Hobbit, which was a really a rush deal. It was not the the behind the scenes. There's a document the 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 behind the scenes stuff on the on the Hobbit DVDs right. show a cast and crew who was just like, we don't want to be doing it this way, but we're, we're stuck. We have no choice. Yeah. And you can the the reception, the quality of the work and the reception of the work, I think, really played into that. And but, that's the studio say they're going, you know, lighting in a bottle again. Right. Now. Well, I mean, you lose a director when you have a, compl- a completely different director. Um, uh, Guillermo del Toro was going to be the original director of The Hobbit. That's and right. He left the project. Yep. And bringing back the original producing and directing team and writing team for The Hobbit from the from the Lord of the Rings, you get Peter Jackson and Fran Jackson and the rest of the folks in there, and then basically say, you know, go. Here's your <laughs> here are your shoot dates, yeah. and watch a really really talented group of people just lose their minds. And the the shots of Peter Jackson, he looks so beaten down. Yeah, and so you know, uh, <laughs> you see what happens when two Avengers movies drive a director into the <laughs> ground. You know, three Hobbit films, but. And then you have comic books where you have a lot more freedom to adapt the source material because there are so much there's so much history with comics that there are a lot of different versions to pull from, which is why you can get a Batman sixty six movie. Yeah, you can get per- Burton's Batman. You can get Shoemaker <laughs> Shoemaker's Batman. I would argue though that Shoemaker's Batman was close. It was. 
<coughs> excuse me, I would say it was probably in the same vein as Batman 66. Oh, yeah. Just yeah. not... Because the camp was there. Mm-hmm. It's just the aesthetic was a little bit darker. Well, I think, unfortunately, when you've established, when you've brought back a character that hasn't had a, a, a film presence in a really long time, like Batman, and you bring Batman back in two Tim Burton movies, mm-hmm. which have very different tones. Burton is a different director. You look at any of his projects. Yes. There's a very distinct kind of storytelling. That's what audiences were reacting to. And so bringing in a different director and giving them a completely different mandate for the kind of story to tell. Sell toys. Yeah. And, but also, you know, let's go silly. Let's go campy. Well, That's not what audiences that were going whole, to the first two films to see. That whole thing was a marketing department mandate oh, from, sure. from Warner Brothers in D.C. It was, we need to sell toys. Mm-hmm. And that's what that whole, I mean, everybody that was involved in that, you know, uh, 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 Chris O'Donnell and George Clooney and Joel Schumacher, as even mm-hmm. said, you know, it came from up top. This is what kind of movie we were going to make. Sure. And it was a terrible Terrible idea. But you end up with things that you have a little more flexibility when it comes to doing comic book movies because if you want to, arguing the merits of Man of Steel, you could also argue that they chose to pull from some of the darker and and more straight sci-fi aspects of Superman. Mm -hmm. And then you look at um, the Dark Knight trilogy, Christopher Nolan, rooting it very much in reality. Right. and and then you could see how somebody looking at the Superman, the new Superman film, the Man of Steel movie, and reacting to that, and trying to put the same kind of aesthetic, which was which was dangerous. And you and I talked about this before the Nolanization of the yes. DC universe. It has some real risks. And I've talked about the fact that if you apl- try to apply reality to superhero films, it ends up getting really really creepy and disturbing and scary because. Mm-hmm. The real world doesn't react well to flying human beings with <laughs> laser eyes. It's, we just don't. Well, and and the other thing too is you get into this. I mean, we've we've seen this kind of an impact, you know, from adapting source material from from one medium to another to another, where the adaptation of the Batman comic book. Mm-hmm into the film world mixed results because of who's making the movie sure when tim burton did it and then joel schumacher did it and who did who did the the final one of those four schumacher did he do the last two Uh he did two okay all right and then you turn around and you get the animated batman Mm -hmm. from bruce tim paul dini alan burnett and that group Mm mm-hmm which is essentially Tim Burton's Batman-ish in uh, the neo-noir 1930s type right, of, yeah. of shtick. And you're like, well, this actually works yeah. really well. well and then it, 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 you get to Nolan's Batman. Mm-hmm. And in between all of that, you've had The Dark Knight Returns. Sure. Which that and Watchmen, we've talked about this before, that and Watchmen and Killing Joke mm-hmm. just blew everything up. And... Then the adaptations now have to be, like you say, with Man of Steel, more grounded in reality. It's got to be more, right. you know, that it, it does have an impact mm-hmm. on what kind of story they sure. tell. Of course it does. And well, some some stories don't survive that transition. 
Well, you end up you end up with something for. There are some legitimate criticisms of Batman versus Superman that have to do with the story, but I, 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 the more I think about it, the the idea that if you're gonna if you're gonna root again, you're you're t- you're taking off that that Nolan realism, yeah, and then you've got the Man of Steel tone, and if you're locking yourself into that, a lot of critics were like, "Well, Batman kills a lot of people," and I'm like, "Well, in the world that you have created." Batman can't help but kill a lot of people. I'm sorry. It's, it's just, just going to happen. It's just going to happen. I mean, yeah. he, he may he may say, I don't want to kill, but... Yeah, it may not be intentional. Yeah, but there's no way for him to not kill. It's right. just it's impossible because physics, the laws of physics apply. You cannot <laughs> change the laws of physics. <laughs> and, and Scotty's not in this film. <laughs> I've got to have 30 minutes. Well, and you know, there's another example. Um, the reboot of the Star Trek universe, it took three films for them to catch the right tone. Because I, I I will argue very much that Star Trek Beyond is really should have been the first film in the series because it's got the one that feels like them going, ah, we watch Star Trek. This is what it is. This, mm-hmm. this is the dynamic between the characters, and it's a film about things. It's a it's a film about it's a film about ideas, and it's a film about you know honor and friendship and strength between you know the the strength of the unit. Versus an individual, you know, trying to do things on their own, but right. you know, the family. And I'm like, well, that's great, guys, but it took you three films to do it, you know. Yep. And, and you've all- lost so many people in the meantime. Yeah, and I think that oddly enough, Star Trek is an example. The reboot is an example of a successful reboot financially. In terms, it got a trilogy of films and wow. more, more probably to come. And it, but it's it's the dollar amounts have worked out really well for them. It alienated some fans to the point where they did they didn't stick around to get to the third film, where it's not a perfect movie. I've still not seen it exactly, and I, and I think you should because I think that it actually gets the closest to because you, you're never gonna recapture. No, you're, you just can't, and and that's the problem with reboots is that even if it's a really excellent reboot, Battlestar Galactica, you are never going to have. You're never going to capture what made the original series successful. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why Battlestar Galactica works is because they didn't try to do the exact same thing. They went on a completely different Mm -hmm. playbook and said, "Okay, we're going to take the pieces." But you can't do that with Star Trek. You can't do that with those characters. You could if you want. If you want, right? Which is why if you're going to do a new Star Trek, Mm -hmm. do a new ship. Right. You get Discovery or you get Deep Space Nine. Yeah. And and of course, remember Deep Space Nine was controversial at the time. Well, it's on a space station. Yeah. It doesn't go anywhere. Well, and then it turned into a war movie, right? And I think that and they, some of the best writing, some of the best Star Trek. It also benefited from that was also the time period where long story arcs. Babylon Babylon Five was yep. out. the The shift twenty four was on the air. Farscape was on the air. The shift to Moving to story arcs, season-long season, yeah, exactly. yeah. season story arcs helped a lot because it enabled it to be a, sh- a show about the effects of war on the Roddenberry Star Trek universe, that well, idealistic and, world. That and they had talked about... Uh, it didn't I, really I exist. Ronald, Ronald Moore, I think, in an interview had talked about the fact that they had wanted to do that from the very beginning of the show, mm-hmm. is to do the longer arcs and the and the... You know the bigger sweeping storylines, and until I don't know if it was 
after Michael Pillar died, mm-hmm. or it was around that time when when they pulled back and Berman went off to work on Voyager, mm-hmm. and they handed everything over to to Bear and Moore and Livingston and whoever else was in the production team. They said, "All right, it's your show now. Go do." And then they said, "All right." Training wheels are off. The reins are off. Let's go. <laughs> and that's when you can see because you can definitely see, I think it's something somewhere around the second or third season is when it really starts to build to that. And, you know, when you get into the sixth and seventh season, that's all it is. Well, you can argue very, very much that the one of the benefits of doing that sort of thing, there was a very Star Trek in all of its incarnations has been about an idealized future. Mm-hmm. And, Many of the creative teams for the movies did their best to push Gene Roddenberry aside because his vision of what that future was versus everybody else's vision of what that future was (laughs) was a different thing. I mean, Roddenberry had a very distinct idea. You saw it in the novelizations, especially if you go to the Star Trek The Motion Picture. Mm. That whole subsection about the the telepathic humans that were involved. Yeah. Yeah. That was meant to be an ongoing thing. And... Thankfully, everyone sat there and went, "What? No, I don't know what you're talking about. We would ne- <laughs> never mention this again." Yeah. You know, so it's. <laughs> well, the other thing too is if you if you have an environment like Roddenberry was looking for, like he was like he would you know his idealized civilization. Mm-hmm. There's no drama, right? Because there's no conflict, mm-hmm. and story is about conflict. It's about you know. Two different ideas coming against each other, working, mm-hmm. working, you know, at cross purposes. Whether one idea is, you know, whether it's good versus evil or, you know, man versus nature or whatever, there's always got to be conflict in order for you to tell a story. Because See, that's you why, have that's why I think you would like Star Trek Beyond because at its core, it, the argument is a difference of ideologies. Yeah. And it's not, well, I won't say anything more because you haven't watched it. <laughs> But yeah, it's. <laughs> I think that when you when you're able to adapt things, even you know, if you look at if you look at what the movie versions of Star Trek were versus the TV versions, mm-hmm. those were because they were they had a longer format, they had a different kind of it's a different kind of storytelling. An yeah. hour, and a, you know, forty two minutes of television versus an hour and a half or two hours of film. Um, you don't, or even if you're telling a story where you've gone from a season long story arc, and then you've got an hour and a half movie. You can do more with character. Yeah. So you yeah. you end up with some things that are uh, what the format they are told in automatically makes some changes. Yeah. Looking at talking about Dune a couple of weeks ago, the idea of turning it into a miniseries or a season-long arc per book, you look at Game of Thrones, and Game of Thrones would not work as a series of movies. I just really no, don't believe you could do it because no, you have you to can condense do, it down. Yeah, two hours would not be enough. Well, I mean, you There's look too many at characters. You look at uh, you know Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. is probably the only thing that's even close to the same kind of story that you're being that's mm-hmm. being told because right. of the, you know the fantasy and the dragons and whatnot. And and Lord of the Rings didn't even tell the entire story that was in those books. Even the expanded version of the movies. Don't have everything. Sure, out. you you have you have to you, when you're adapting something, you have to make the choices. What is going to play on camera? What yeah. is not? And what's, a, what's our A line right story? And that everything else has to serve that. And every and if you can have additional things, that's great. That's gravy. But yeah. there are so many moving parts in a book series like uh, uh, 
when you're when you're dealing with something like Game of Thrones. Imagine trying to adapt years ago the Forgotten Realms series. People were talking about oh, let's yeah. make Forgotten Realms movies. It's like oh, how are you going to do that? <laughs> On the most recent Sci-Fi for Chicks, mm-hmm. they were talking about you know science fiction versus horror versus fantasy and all these things. Sure, and the topic came up. Uh, uh, Mindy had said something about not wanting to see the the Harry Potter movies Mm -hmm. to her weren't as good because seeing the adaptations what actually made it to film on screen wasn't as good as what she saw in her head Mm -hmm. and then Jennifer said something about well I don't have to worry about that because I have you know they're never going to adapt the wheel of time (laughs) because it's like, what, 14, 15 different books. Right. And that's, again, that's one of those things where you're looking at so much of the source material is out there. Mm -hmm. How how in the world would you do it? All right, so the last five minutes, I'm going to give you your, your question of the day. What would you want to see adapted that has never been adapted yet? I honestly have for years and years and years... Because we talked, we mentioned a couple weeks ago as well. Uh, I Robot. I want to see Caves of Steel adapted because I'm a film noir guy. Okay, mm-hmm, we talked sure. about this before. Yep. Uh, Caves of Steel, um, Robots of Aurora. That's not what it's called. What's the second one? Oh. Anyway, uh, the yeah, those the um, the Lige Bailey or Daniel Ovala books. They are buddy cop stories. They're film noir in space or film noir on Earth in the first one, and then it goes into space. And it is buddy cop film noir with robots, robot with android uh, policemen. Yeah, um, it's a gr- it's actually a really impressive racism allegory mm. if you want to if you want to look at it completely from that standpoint. I mean, it's it's robot it kinda, bigotry. It kind of sounds like almost human. You remember the the fox thing? Okay, so I'm, almost I'm hu- looking at you yes. like a robot because right. you're a thing. You're almost, not a person. almost human had elements of it, but there are there's a there's a world building aspect that Asimov did. Mm-hmm. Uh, with these books that ultimately ended up incorporating these are the this is actually the the series that started his giant incorporation of everything he ever wrote into one giant universe right so it introduces some characters that will play out massively in in the uh, the Asimov shared universe that is all of his writing mm. but they're also really impressive mysteries because as we we tend to forget that Asimov was actually a really good mystery writer as well right and I would love to see a really high quality trilogy of films. Uh, dark, give me the dark st- city aesthetic, uh-huh. and and run with the fact that it's about you know, you know, the evolution of humanity and murder and bigotry and trust and everything. It would be a really cool series of sci-fi detective films. I'd love to see that. I've got two. Yeah. Um, for kids, you know, we talked about we talked about Lord of the Rings. We talked about the Hobbit, but you know, this, the the Narnia books. You know, we've got. Madeline Lingle's books, the Wrinkle in Time, sure. all of those that, that are coming. That are coming. It's coming. There I'm is a book. About that. It's a single book. It's all by itself. It's called The Gamage Cup mm-hmm. from Carol Kindle. Okay, and it's kind of the same thing. It's 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 kind of like Rivendell, and you've got kind of Hobbit like characters okay, and sure. swords that glow when the bad guys show up and that kind of thing. It was a, it's a, it's a good book, and I think it would make a good kids movie mm-hmm. adaptation. And then for older, you get the last Legionary series from Douglas Hill. Oh, okay, sure. The four, you mm-hmm. know, Galactic Warlord and, and those four, where you have Kyle Randor, who's the last Legionary. He's, he's like a space cop, mm-hmm. right? And he's exposed to radiation, and 
he's dying. He's the last of his kind, right. and he gets rescued, and he gets you know his skeleton replaced with adamantium <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> right, right. right? And he gets this mission that he's going on to to find the galactic warlord who killed all of his people. Mm-hmm. But the the thing that drives him is it's really interesting because. You don't get the sense that he's out for revenge. It's not taken it's, in space. It's justice. <laughs> you know, he's he's not doing. Yeah, he's he's not doing that. It's it's really interesting to see how that plays out with his motivations mm-hmm. as he goes further into those those that series of books. I'm really surprised that neither one of those has ever been adapted. Well, actually, if you want to go younger, I throw out a younger one here. Um, Garth Nix is oh, he's an Australian author. Uh-huh. Um, he has a series of books that are aimed at teens but are really, really entertaining for adults, set in an alternate England where basically Scotland is magic territory. Uh, that's where basically the line is. And it's they're really they're really fascinating stuff. Uh, I, I, that's, I'm surprised that no one's ever tapped that because it'd be a great young adult series of films that wouldn't drive you insane. <laughs> like, I'm looking at you, Divergent and Allegiant and all those things. Oh, did you see, did you see Shailene Woodley is not going to be in yeah, the last movie? Yeah, I saw that. Well, I, I'm not surprised. I mean, the last yeah. film got tr- savaged in the reviews, and I saw enough of it. I saw yeah. like 10 minutes of it, and I'm going, I'm bored. What yeah. is this? So. Well, the final, the final movie is actually going to be a TV movie. And so clearly that's a step down. I, it is, yeah. yes. Sorry, folks, and it is. They're, they're talking about, oh, the, the rumor is the network, I think it's going to be on Freeform, I don't know. The network, no, Lifetime. One of those, I don't know. And it was So a tiny to, audience. A feels, they're, they're a, fe- a feels network. Yeah, yeah. And they're going to hopefully try to make this uh, a pilot. Sure. Back uh-huh. to our pilot for a, a spinoff series. Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> now, Grant, Shannara Chronicles on mm-hmm. MTV, it's yeah. a fairly good piece of work. I've never read the books, right. so I don't know how faithful it is. But I, you know, production value especially, I mean, it's yeah. really, really, really lush. It's it, They're spending their money well. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. And I've heard good things about Shadowhunters, right. which is another adaptation that's on right now. So, anyway, okay. So, send us an email, h2o at com. Let us know what books are out there that haven't been adapted yet that you think should be. And we'll read from the listener mailbag. And next week... 150. Woohoo! We'll try to figure out something <laughs> we're talking about. We'll, in the meantime. we'll wear funny hats. Yeah, we wear funny hats. Thanks very much for listening. Folks. This has been a presentation of Sci Fi for Me Radio. Copyright 2017 by Flaming Dog Media LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. This is Sci Fi for Me Radio.